BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Book 15, Chapter 15 of War and Peace, Volume 4 by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 15, Chapter 15 At the end of January, Pierre went to Moscow and stayed in an annex of his house which had not been burned. He called on Count Rostopchin and on some acquaintances who were back in Moscow, and he intended to leave for Petersburg two days later. Everybody was celebrating the victory, everything was bubbling with life in the ruined but reviving city. Everyone was pleased to see Pierre, everyone wished to meet him, and everyone questioned him about what he had seen. Pierre felt particularly well disposed toward them all, but was now instinctively on his guard for fear of binding himself in any way. To all questions put to him, whether important or quite trifling, such as, where would he live? Was he going to rebuild? When was he going to Petersburg, and would he mind taking a parcel for someone? He replied, Yes, perhaps, or I think so, and so on. He had heard that the Rostovs were at Kostroma, but the thought of Natasha seldom occurred to him. If it did, it was only as a pleasant memory of the distant past. He felt himself not only free from social obligations, but also from that feeling which it seemed to him he had aroused in himself. On the third day after his arrival he heard from the Drubetskoys that Princess Mary was in Moscow. The death, sufferings, and last days of Prince Andrew had often occupied Pierre's thoughts, and now recurred to him with fresh vividness. Having heard at dinner that Princess Mary was in Moscow and living in her house, which had not been burned, in Vozhevenka Street, he drove that same evening to see her. On his way to the house, Pierre kept thinking of Prince Andrew, of their friendship, of his various meetings with him, and especially of the last one at Borodino. Is it possible that he died in the bitter frame of mind he was then in? Is it possible that the meaning of life was not disclosed to him before he died? thought Pierre. He recalled Karateyev and his death and involuntarily began to compare these two men, so different and yet so similar, in that they had both lived and both died, and in the love he felt for both of them. Pierre drove up to the house of the old prince in a most serious mood. The house had escaped the fire. It showed signs of damage, but its general aspect was unchanged. 
the old footman, who met Pierre with a stern face, as if wishing to make the visitor feel that the absence of the old prince had not disturbed the order of things in the house, informed him that the princess had gone to her own apartments, and that she received on Sundays. "'Announce me. Perhaps she will see me,' said Pierre. "'Yes, sir,' said the man. "'Please step into the portrait-gallery.' A few minutes later the footman returned with Dessalle, who brought word from the princess that she would be very glad to see Pierre if he would excuse her want of ceremony and come upstairs to her apartment. In a rather low room lit by one candle sat the princess, and with her another person dressed in black. Pierre remembered that the princess always had lady companions, but who they were and what they were like he never knew or remembered. This must be one of her companions, he thought, glancing at the lady in the black dress. The princess rose quickly to meet him and held out her hand. Yes, she said, looking at his altered face after he had kissed her hand. So this is how we meet again. He spoke of you even at the very last, she went on, turning her eyes from Pierre to her companion with a shyness that surprised him for an instant. I was so glad to hear of your safety. It was the first piece of good news we had received for a long time." Again the princess glanced round at her companion, with even more uneasiness in her manner, and was about to add something, but Pierre interrupted her. "'Just imagine, I knew nothing about him,' said he. "'I thought he had been killed. All I know I heard at second hand from others. I only know that he fell in with the Rostovs. What a strange coincidence!" Pierre spoke rapidly and with animation. He glanced once at the companion's face, saw her attentive and kindly gaze fixed on him, and as often happens when one is talking, felt somehow that this companion in the black dress was a good, kind, excellent creature who would not hinder his conversing freely with Princess Mary. But when he mentioned the Rostovs, Princess Mary's face expressed still greater embarrassment. She again glanced rapidly from Pierre's face to that of the lady in the black dress, and said, "'Do you really not recognize her?' Pierre looked again at the companion's pale, delicate face with its black eyes and peculiar mouth, and something near to him, long forgotten and more than sweet, looked at him from those attentive eyes. "'But no, it can't be.' he thought. This stern, thin, pale face looks so much older. It cannot be she. It merely reminds me of her." But at that moment Princess Mary said, "'Natasha!' And with difficulty, effort, and stress, like the opening of a door grown rusty on its hinges, a smile appeared on the face with the attentive eyes and from that opening door came a breath of fragrance which suffused Pierre with a happiness he had long forgotten, and of which he had not even been thinking, especially at that moment. It suffused him, seized him, and enveloped him completely. When she smiled, doubt was no longer possible. It was Natasha, and he loved her. At that moment Pierre involuntarily betrayed to her, to Princess Mary, and above all to himself, a secret of which he himself had been unaware. He flushed joyfully, yet with painful distress. He tried to hide his agitation. But the more he tried to hide it, the more clearly, clearer than any words could have done, 
did he betray to himself, to her, and to Princess Mary, that he loved her? No, it's only the unexpectedness of it, thought Pierre. But as soon as he tried to continue the conversation he had begun with Princess Mary, he again glanced at Natasha, and a still deeper flush suffused his face and a still stronger agitation of mingled joy and fear seized his soul. He became confused in his speech and stopped in the middle of what he was saying. Pierre had failed to notice Natasha because he did not at all expect to see her there, but he had failed to recognize her because the change in her since he last saw her was immense. She had grown thin and pale, but that was not what made her unrecognizable. She was unrecognizable at the moment he entered because on that face, whose eyes had always shone with a suppressed smile of the joy of life, now when he first entered and glanced at her, there was not the least shadow of a smile. Only her eyes were kindly attentive and sadly interrogative. Pierre's confusion was not reflected by any confusion on Natasha's part, but only by the pleasure that just perceptibly lit up her whole face. End of Book Fifteen, Chapter Fifteen Book Fifteen, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Fifteen, Chapter Sixteen She has come to stay with me, said Princess Mary. The Count and Countess will be here in a few days. The Countess is in a dreadful state. But it was necessary for Natasha herself to see a doctor. They insisted on her coming with me. Yes, is there a family free from sorrow now? said Pierre, addressing Natasha. You know, it happened the very day we were rescued. I saw him. What a delightful boy he was! Natasha looked at him and by way of answer to his words her eyes widened and lit up. "'What can one say or think of as a consolation?' said Pierre. "'Nothing. Why had such a splendid boy, so full of life, to die?' "'Yes, in these days it would be hard to live without faith,' remarked Princess Mary. "'Yes, yes, that is really true,' Pierre hastily interrupted her. Why is it true? Natasha asked, looking attentively into Pierre's eyes. How can you ask why? said Princess Mary. The thought alone of what awaits. Natasha, without waiting for Princess Mary to finish, again looked inquiringly at Pierre. And because, Pierre continued, only one who believed that there is a God ruling us can bear a loss such as hers and yours. Natasha had already opened her mouth to speak, but suddenly stopped. Pierre hurriedly turned away from her and again addressed Princess Mary, asking about his friend's last days. Pierre's confusion had now almost vanished, but at the same time he felt that his freedom had also completely gone. He felt that there was now a judge of his every word and action, whose judgment mattered more to him than that of all the rest of the world. As he spoke now, he was considering what impression his words would make on Natasha. 
He did not purposely say things to please her, but whatever he was saying he regarded from her standpoint. Princess Mary, reluctantly as is usual in such cases, began telling of the condition in which she had found Prince Andrew. But Pierre's face quivering with emotion, his questions and his eager restless expression, gradually compelled her to go into details which she feared to recall for her own sake. "'Yes, yes, and so,' Pierre kept saying as he leaned toward her with his whole body, and eagerly listened to her story. "'Yes, yes, so he grew tranquil and softened. With all his soul he had always sought one thing, to be perfectly good, so he could not be afraid of death. The faults he had, if he had any, were not of his making. So he did soften. What a happy thing that he saw you again," he added, suddenly turning to Natasha and looking at her with eyes full of tears. Natasha's face twitched. She frowned and lowered her eyes for a moment. She hesitated for an instant whether to speak or not. Yes, that was happiness," she then said in her quiet voice with its deep chest notes. For me it certainly was happiness. She paused. And he, he, he said he was wishing for it at the very moment I entered the room. Natasha's voice broke. She blushed pressed her clasped hands on her knees, and then, controlling herself with an evident effort, lifted her head and began to speak rapidly. We knew nothing of it when we started from Moscow. I did not dare to ask him about it. Then suddenly Sonia told me he was traveling with us. I had no idea and could not imagine what state he was in. All I wanted was to see him and be with him," she said, trembling and breathing quickly and not letting them interrupt her she went on to tell what she had never yet mentioned to anyone, all she had lived through during those three weeks of their journey and life at Yaroslavl. Pierre listened to her with lips parted and eyes fixed upon her full of tears. As he listened he did not think of Prince Andrew, nor of death, nor of what she was telling. He listened to her and felt only pity for her, for what she was suffering now while she was speaking. Princess Mary, frowning in her effort to hold back her tears, sat beside Natasha, and heard for the first time the story of those last days of her brother's and Natasha's love. Evidently Natasha needed to tell that painful yet joyful tale. She spoke, mingling most trifling details with the intimate secrets of her soul, and it seemed as if she could never finish. Several times she repeated the same thing twice. De Salle's voice was heard outside the door asking whether little Nicholas might come in to say good night. Well, that's all, everything, said Natasha. She got up quickly just as Nicholas entered, almost ran to the door which was hidden by curtains, struck her head against it, and rushed from the room with a moan, either of pain or sorrow. Pierre gazed at the door through which she had disappeared and did not understand why he suddenly felt all alone in the world. Princess Mary roused him from his abstraction by drawing his attention to her nephew who had entered the room. At that moment of emotional tenderness young Nicholas' face, which resembled his father's, affected Pierre so much 
that when he had kissed the boy he got up quickly, took out his handkerchief, and went to the window. He wished to take leave of Princess Mary, but she would not let him go. No. Natasha and I sometimes don't go to sleep till after two, so please don't go. I will order supper. Go downstairs. We will come immediately." Before Pierre left the room, Princess Mary told him, "'This is the first time she has talked of him like that.'" End of Book Fifteen, Chapter Sixteen Book Fifteen, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Fifteen, Chapter Seventeen. Pierre was shown into the large, brightly lit dining room. A few minutes later, he heard footsteps, and Princess Mary entered with Natasha. Natasha was calm though a severe and grave expression had again settled on her face. They all three of them now experienced that feeling of awkwardness which usually follows after a serious and heartfelt talk. It is impossible to go back to the same conversation, to talk of trifles is awkward, and yet the desire to speak is there, and silence seems like affectation. They went silently to the table. The footman drew back the chairs and pushed them up again. Pierre unfolded his cold table-napkin, and, resolving to break the silence, looked at Natasha and at Princess Mary. They had evidently both formed the same resolution. The eyes of both shone with satisfaction and a confession that besides sorrow life also has joy. "'Do you take vodka, Count?' asked Princess Mary, and those words suddenly banished the shadows of the past. "'Now tell us about yourself.' said she. One hears such improbable wonders about you." "'Yes,' replied Pierre, with the smile of mild irony now habitual to him. "'They even tell me wonders I myself never dreamed of. Mary Abramovna invited me to her house and kept telling me what had happened, or ought to have happened to me. Stepan Stepanich also instructed me how I ought to tell of my experiences. In general, I have noticed that it is very easy to be an interesting man. I am an interesting man now. People invite me out and tell me all about myself." Natasha smiled and was on the point of speaking. "'We have been told,' Princess Mary interrupted her, "'that you lost two millions in Moscow. Is that true?' "'But I am three times as rich as before,' returned Pierre. Though the position was now altered by his decision to pay his wife's debts and to rebuild his houses, Pierre still maintained that he had become three times as rich as before. "'What I have certainly gained is freedom,' he began seriously, but did not continue, noticing that this theme was too egotistic. "'And are you building?' "'Yes, Savelich says I must.' "'Tell me—' "'You did not know of the Countess' death when you decided to remain in Moscow?' asked Princess Mary, and immediately blushed, noticing that her question, following his mention of freedom, ascribed to his words a meaning he had perhaps not intended. "'No,' answered Pierre, evidently not considering awkward the meaning Princess Mary had given to his words. "'I heard of it in Orel, and you cannot imagine how it shocked me. 
We were not an exemplary couple," he added quickly, glancing at Natasha and noticing on her face curiosity as to how he would speak of his wife. But her death shocked me terribly. When two people quarrel, they are always both in fault, and one's own guilt suddenly becomes terribly serious when the other is no longer alive. And then such a death, without friends and without consolation. I am very, very sorry for her," he concluded, and was pleased to notice a look of glad approval on Natasha's face. "'Yes, and so you are once more an eligible bachelor,' said Princess Mary. Pierre suddenly flushed crimson, and for a long time tried not to look at Natasha. When he ventured to glance her way again, her face was cold, stern, and he fancied even contemptuous. "'And did you really see and speak to Napoleon, as we have been told?' said Princess Mary. Pierre laughed. "'No, not once. Everybody seems to imagine that being taken prisoner means being Napoleon's guest. Not only did I never see him, but I heard nothing about him. I was in much lower company.' Supper was over, and Pierre, who at first declined to speak about his captivity, was gradually led on to do so. "'But it's true that you remained in Moscow to kill Napoleon?' Natasha asked with a slight smile. "'I guessed it then, when we met at the Sukarev Tower, do you remember?' Pierre admitted that it was true, and from that was gradually led by Princess Mary's questions, and especially by Natasha's, into giving a detailed account of his adventures. At first he spoke with the amused and mild irony now customary with him toward everybody, and especially toward himself. But when he came to describe the horrors and sufferings he had witnessed, he was unconsciously carried away and began speaking with the suppressed emotion of a man re-experiencing in recollection strong impressions he has lived through. Princess Mary, with a gentle smile, looked now at Pierre and now at Natasha. In the whole narrative she saw only Pierre and his goodness. Natasha, leaning on her elbow, the expression of her face constantly changing with the narrative, watched Pierre with an attention that never wandered, evidently herself experiencing all that he described. Not only her look, but her exclamations and the brief question she put showed Pierre that she understood just what he wished to convey. It was clear that she understood not only what he said, but also what he wished to, but could not express in words. The account Pierre gave of the incident with the child and the woman for protecting whom he was arrested was this. It was an awful sight. Children abandoned, some in the flames. One was snatched out before my eyes. And there were women who had their things snatched off and their earrings torn out. He flushed and grew confused. Then a patrol arrived, and all the men—all those who are not looting, that is—were arrested, and I among them. "'I am sure you're not telling us everything. I am sure you did something,' said Natasha, and pausing added, "'something fine.' Pierre continued. When he spoke of the execution he wanted to pass over the horrible details, but Natasha insisted that he should not omit anything. Pierre began to tell about Karatayev, but paused. By this time he had risen from the table and was pacing the room, Natasha following him with her eyes. Then he added, "'No, 
You can't understand what I learned from that illiterate man, that simple fellow." "'Yes, yes, go on,' said Natasha. "'Where is he?' They killed him almost before my eyes. And Pierre, his voice trembling continually, went on to tell of the last days of their retreat, of Karatev's illness and his death. He told of his adventures as he had never yet recalled them. He now, as it were, saw a new meaning in all he had gone through. Now that he was telling it all to Natasha, he experienced that pleasure which a man has when women listen to him. Not clever women, who, when listening, either try to remember what they hear to enrich their minds, and when opportunity offers to retell it, or wish to adopt it to some thought of their own, and promptly contribute their own clever comments prepared in their little mental workshop, but the pleasure given by real women gifted with a capacity to select and absorb the very best a man shows of himself. Natasha, without knowing it, was all attention. She did not lose a word, no single quiver in Pierre's voice, no look, no twitch of a muscle in his face, nor a single gesture. She caught the unfinished word in its flight and took it straight into her open heart, divining the secret meaning of all Pierre's mental travail. Princess Mary understood his story and sympathized with him, but she now saw something else that absorbed all her attention. She saw the possibility of love and happiness between Natasha and Pierre, and the first thought of this filled her heart with gladness. It was three o'clock in the morning. The footmen came in with sad and stern faces to change the candles, but no one noticed them. Pierre finished his story. Natasha continued to look at him intently, with bright, attentive, and animated eyes, as if trying to understand something more which he had perhaps left untold. Pierre, in shamefaced and happy confusion, glanced occasionally at her, and tried to think what to say next to introduce a fresh subject. Princess Mary was silent. It occurred to none of them that it was three o'clock and time to go to bed. "'People speak of misfortunes and sufferings,' remarked Pierre. "'But if, at this moment, I were asked, "'Would you rather be what you were before you were taken prisoner, "'or go through all this again? "'Then, for heaven's sake, let me again have captivity and horseflesh.' "'We imagine that, when we are thrown out of our usual ruts, "'all is lost, but it is only then that what is new and good begins.' While there is life, there is happiness. There is much, much before us. I say this to you," he added, turning to Natasha. Yes, yes, she said, answering something quite different. I too should wish nothing but to relive it all from the beginning. Pierre looked intently at her. Yes, and nothing more, said Natasha. It's not true. Not true, cried Pierre. I am not to blame for being alive and wishing to live, nor you either. Suddenly Natasha bent her head, covered her face with her hands, and began to cry. What is it, Natasha? said Princess Mary. Nothing, nothing. She smiled at Pierre through her tears. Good night. It is time for bed. Pierre rose and took his leave. Princess Mary and Natasha met as usual in the bedroom, 
they talked of what Pierre had told them. Princess Mary did not express her opinion of Pierre, nor did Natasha speak of him. "'Well, good-night, Mary,' said Natasha. "'Do you know, I am often afraid that, by not speaking of him—' She met Prince Andrew. "'For fear of not doing justice to our feelings, we forget him.' Princess Mary sighed deeply, and thereby acknowledged the justice of Natasha's remark, but she did not express agreement in words. "'Is it possible to forget?' said she. "'It did me so much good to tell all about it to-day. It was hard and painful, but good, very good,' said Natasha. "'I am sure he really loved him. That is why I told him. Was it all right?' she added, suddenly blushing. "'To tell Pierre? Oh, yes! What a splendid man he is!' said Princess Mary. "'Do you know, Mary?' Natasha suddenly said with a mischievous smile such as Princess Mary had not seen on her face for a long time. "'He has somehow grown so clean, smooth, and fresh, as if he had just come out of a Russian bath. Do you understand? Out of a moral bath. Isn't it true?' "'Yes,' replied Princess Mary. "'He has greatly improved.' With a short coat and his hair cropped, just as if, well, just as if he had come straight from the bath. Papa used to. I understand why he, Prince Andrew, liked no one so much as him," said Princess Mary. Yes, and yet he is quite different. They say men are friends when they are quite different. That must be true. Really, he is quite unlike him in everything. Yes, but he's wonderful. Well, good-night," said Natasha. And the same mischievous smile lingered for a long time on her face, as if it had been forgotten there. End of Book Fifteen, Chapter Seventeen Book Fifteen, Chapter Eighteen of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Fifteen, Chapter Eighteen It was a long time before Pierre could fall asleep that night. He paced up and down his room, now turning his thoughts on a difficult problem and frowning, now suddenly shrugging his shoulders and wincing, and now smiling happily. He was thinking of Prince Andrew, of Natasha, and of their love, at one moment jealous of her past then reproaching himself for that feeling. It was already six in the morning, and he still paced up and down the room. "'Well, what's to be done if it cannot be avoided? What's to be done? Evidently it has to be so,' said he to himself, and hastily undressing he got into bed, happy and agitated but free from hesitation or indecision. "'Strange and impossible as such happiness seems, I must do everything that she and I may be man and wife," he told himself. A few days previously Pierre had decided to go to Petersburg on the Friday. When he awoke on the Thursday, Savelich came to ask him about packing for the journey. "'What? To Petersburg? What is Petersburg? Who is there in Petersburg?' he asked involuntarily, though only to himself. "'Oh, yes, long ago before this happened, 
I did for some reason mean to go to Petersburg," he reflected. Why? But perhaps I shall go. What a good fellow he is, and how attentive, and how he remembers everything," he thought, looking at Savelich's old face. And what a pleasant smile he has! Well, Savelich, do you still not wish to accept your freedom? Pierre asked him. What's the good of freedom to me, Your Excellency? We lived under the late Count, the kingdom of heaven be his, and we have lived under you too, without ever being wronged. And your children? The children will live just the same. With such masters one can live. But what about my heirs? said Pierre. Supposing I suddenly marry? It might happen, he added with an involuntary smile. If I may take the liberty, Your Excellency, it would be a good thing. How easy he thinks it, thought Pierre. He doesn't know how terrible it is and how dangerous. Too soon or too late, it is terrible. So what are your orders? Are you starting tomorrow? asked Savelich. No, I'll put it off for a bit. I'll tell you later. You must forgive the trouble I have put you to, said Pierre, and seeing Savelich smile, he thought, but how strange it is that he should not know that now there is no Petersburg for me, and that that must be settled first of all. But probably he knows it well enough and is only pretending. Shall I have a talk with him and see what he thinks? Pierre reflected. No, another time. At breakfast Pierre told the princess, his cousin, that he had been to see Princess Mary the day before and had there met. Whom do you think? Natasha Rostova. The princess seemed to see nothing more extraordinary in that than if he had seen Anna Semenovna. Do you know her? I have seen the princess, she replied. I heard that they were arranging a match for her with young Rostov. It would be a very good thing for the Rostovs. They are said to be utterly ruined. No, I mean, do you know Natasha Rostova? I heard about that affair of hers at the time. It was a great pity. No, she either doesn't understand or is pretending, thought Pierre. Better not say anything to her, either. The princess, too, had prepared provisions for Pierre's journey. How kind they all are, thought Pierre. What is surprising is that they should trouble about these things now when it can no longer be of interest to them. And all for me. On the same day the chief of police came to Pierre, inviting him to send a representative to the faceted palace to recover things that were to be returned to their owners that day. And this man, too, thought Pierre, looking into the face of the chief of police. What a fine, good-looking officer, and how kind! Fancy bothering about such trifles now! And they actually say he is not honest and takes bribes! What nonsense! Besides, why shouldn't he take bribes? That's the way he was brought up, and everybody does it. But what a kind, pleasant face, and how he smiles as he looks at me! Pierre went to Princess Mary's to dinner. As he drove through the streets past the houses that had been burned down, he was surprised by the beauty of those ruins. The picturesqueness of the chimney-stacks and tumble-down walls of the burned-out quarters of the town, stretching out and concealing one another, reminded him of the Rhine and the Colosseum. 
the cabmen he met and their passengers, the carpenters cutting the timber for new houses with axes, the women hawkers and the shopkeepers, all looked at him with cheerful beaming eyes that seemed to say, Ah, there he is! Let's see what will come of it! At the entrance to Princess Mary's house, Pierre felt doubtful whether he had really been there the night before, and really seen Natasha and talked to her. Perhaps I imagined it. Perhaps I shall go in and find no one there. But he had hardly entered the room before he felt her presence with his whole being by the loss of his sense of freedom. She was in the same black dress with soft folds and her hair was done the same way as the day before, but she was quite different. Had she been like this when he entered the day before, he could not for a moment have failed to recognize her. She was as he had known her almost as a child, and later on as Prince Andrew's fiancée. A bright questioning light shone in her eyes, and on her face was a friendly and strangely roguish expression. Pierre dined with them and would have spent the whole evening there, but Princess Mary was going to Vespers and Pierre left the house with her. Next day he came early, dined and stayed the whole evening. Though Princess Mary and Natasha were evidently glad to see their visitor, and though all Pierre's interest was now centered in that house, by the evening they had talked over everything and the conversation passed from one trivial topic to another and repeatedly broke off. He stayed so long that Princess Mary and Natasha exchanged glances, evidently wondering when he would go. Pierre noticed this but could not go. He felt uneasy and embarrassed, but sat on because he simply could not get up and take his leave. Princess Mary, foreseeing no end to this, rose first, and complaining of a headache began to say good-night. "'So you are going to Petersburg tomorrow?' she asked. "'No, I am not going,' Pierre replied hastily, in a surprised tone and as though offended. "'Yes. No. To Petersburg? Tomorrow, but I won't say good-bye yet. I will call round in case you have any commissions for me,' said he, standing before Princess Mary and turning red, but not taking his departure. Natasha gave him her hand and went out. Princess Mary, on the other hand, instead of going away, sank into an armchair, and looked sternly and intently at him with her deep, radiant eyes. The weariness she had plainly shown before had now quite passed off. With a deep and long-drawn sigh she seemed to be prepared for a lengthy talk. When Natasha left the room, Pierre's confusion and awkwardness immediately vanished and were replaced by eager excitement. He quickly moved an armchair toward Princess Mary. Yes. I wanted to tell you," said he, answering her look as if she had spoken. "'Princess, help me. What am I to do? Can I hope? Princess, my dear friend, listen. I know it all. I know I am not worthy of her. I know it's impossible to speak of it now. But I want to be a brother to her. No, not that. I don't. I can't.' He paused and rubbed his face and eyes with his hands. "'Well,' he went on with an evident effort at self-control and coherence, "'I don't know when I began to love her, but I have loved her and her alone all my life, and I love her so that I cannot imagine life without her. I cannot propose to her at present, but 
the thought that perhaps she might some day be my wife, and that I may be missing that possibility, that possibility is terrible. Tell me, can I hope? Tell me what I am to do, dear princess," he added after a pause, and touched her hand as she did not reply. "'I am thinking of what you have told me,' answered Princess Mary. "'This is what I will say. You are right that to speak to her of love at present—' Princess Mary stopped. She was going to say that to speak of love was impossible, but she stopped because she had seen by the sudden change in Natasha two days before that she would not only not be hurt if Pierre spoke of his love, but that it was the very thing she wished for. "'To speak to her now wouldn't do,' said the princess all the same. "'But what am I to do?' "'Leave it to me,' said Princess Mary. "'I know.' Pierre was looking into Princess Mary's eyes. "'Well, well?' he said. I know that she loves—will love you," Princess Mary corrected herself. Before her words were out, Pierre had sprung up and with a frightened expression seized Princess Mary's hand. "'What makes you think so? You think I may hope? You think—' "'Yes, I think so,' said Princess Mary, with a smile. "'Write to her parents and leave it to me. I will tell her when I can. I wish it to happen, and my heart tells me it will. No, it cannot be. How happy I am! But it can't be. How happy I am! No, it can't be!" Pierre kept saying as he kissed Princess Mary's hands. "'Go to Petersburg. That will be best. And I will write to you,' she said. "'To Petersburg? Go there?' "'Very well. I'll go.' But I may come again tomorrow? Next day Pierre came to say good-bye. Natasha was less animated than she had been the day before, but that day, as he looked at her, Pierre sometimes felt as if he was vanishing and that neither he nor she existed any longer, that nothing existed but happiness. "'Is it possible? No, it can't be,' he told himself at every look, gesture, and word that filled his soul with joy when on saying good-bye he took her thin, slender hand, he could not help holding it a little longer in his own. "'Is it possible that this hand, that face, those eyes, all this treasure of feminine charm so strange to me now, is it possible that it will one day be mine forever, as familiar to me as I am to myself? No, that's impossible.' "'Good-bye, Count.' she said aloud. "'I shall look forward very much to your return,' she added in a whisper. And these simple words, her look and the expression on her face which accompanied them, formed for two months the subject of inexhaustible memories, interpretations, and happy meditations for Pierre. "'I shall look forward very much to your return. Yes, yes, how did she say it? Yes, I shall look forward very much to your return. Oh, how happy I am! What is happening to me? How happy I am!" said Pierre to himself. End of Book 15, Chapter 18
Book Fifteen, Chapter Nineteen, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Fifteen, Chapter Nineteen. There was nothing in Pierre's soul now at all like what had troubled it during his courtship of Elaine. He did not repeat to himself with a sickening feeling of shame the words he had spoken, or say, Oh, why did I not say that? And whatever made me say Javouem? On the contrary, he now repeated in imagination every word that he or Natasha had spoken, and pictured every detail of her face and smile, and did not wish to diminish or add anything, but only to repeat it again and again. There was now not a shadow of doubt in his mind as to whether what he had undertaken was right or wrong. Only one terrible doubt sometimes crossed his mind. Wasn't it all a dream? Isn't Princess Mary mistaken? Am I not too conceited and self-confident? I believe all this. And suddenly Princess Mary will tell her, and she will be sure to smile and say, How strange! He must be deluding himself. Doesn't he know that he is a man, just a man, while I—I I am something altogether different and higher? That was the only doubt often troubling Pierre. He did not now make any plans. The happiness before him appeared so inconceivable that if only he could attain it, it would be the end of all things. Everything ended with that. A joyful, unexpected frenzy, of which he had thought himself incapable, possessed him. The whole meaning of life, not for him alone, but for the whole world, seemed to him centered in his love and the possibility of being loved by her. At times everybody seemed to him to be occupied with one thing only, his future happiness. Sometimes it seemed to him that other people were all as pleased as he was himself, and merely tried to hide that pleasure by pretending to be busy with other interests. In every word and gesture he saw allusions to his happiness. He often surprised those he met by his significantly happy looks and smiles, which seemed to express a secret understanding between him and them. And when he realized that people might not be aware of his happiness, he pitied them with his whole heart and felt a desire somehow to explain to them that all that occupied them was a mere frivolous trifle unworthy of attention. When it was suggested to him that he should enter the civil service, or when the war or any general political affairs were discussed on the assumption that everybody's welfare depended on this or that issue of events, he would listen with a mild and pitying smile and surprise people by his strange comments. But at this time he saw everybody both those who, as he imagined, understood the real meaning of life, that is, what he was feeling, and those unfortunates who evidently did not understand it, in the bright light of the emotion that shone within himself. And at once, without any effort, he saw in everyone he met everything that was good and worthy of being loved. When dealing with the affairs and papers of his dead wife, her memory aroused in him no feeling but pity, that she had not known the bliss he now knew. Prince Vasily, who, having obtained a new post and some fresh decorations, was particularly proud at this time, seemed to him a pathetic, kindly old man much to be pitied. Often in afterlife Pierre recalled this period of blissful insanity. 
All the views he formed of men and circumstances at this time remain true for him always. He not only did not renounce them subsequently, but when he was in doubt or inwardly at variance, he referred to the views he held at this time of his madness and they always proved correct. I may have appeared strange and queer then, he thought, but I was not so mad as I seemed. On the contrary, I was then wiser and had more insight than at any other time, and understood all that is worth understanding in life, because, because I was happy. Pierre's insanity consisted in not waiting, as he used to do, to discover personal attributes which he termed good qualities in people before loving them. His heart was now overflowing with love, and by loving people without cause he discovered indubitable causes for loving them. End of Book 15, Chapter 19book 15 chapter 20 of war and peace volume 4 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 15 chapter 20 after pierre's departure that first evening when natasha had said to princess mary with a gaily mocking smile he looks just yes just as if he had come out of a russian bath in a short coat and with his hair cropped. Something hidden and unknown to herself but irrepressible awoke in Natasha's soul. Everything, her face, walk, look and voice, was suddenly altered. To her own surprise a power of life and hope of happiness rose to the surface and demanded satisfaction. From that evening she seemed to have forgotten all that had happened to her. She no longer complained of her position, did not say a word about the past, and no longer feared to make happy plans for the future. She spoke a little of Pierre, but when Princess Mary mentioned him, a long-extinguished light once more kindled in her eyes and her lips curved with a strange smile. The change that took place in Natasha at first surprised Princess Mary, but when she understood its meaning it grieved her. "'Can she have loved my brother so little as to be able to forget him so soon?' she thought when she reflected on the change. But when she was with Natasha she was not vexed with her and did not reproach her. The reawakened power of life that had seized Natasha was so evidently irrepressible and unexpected by her that in her presence Princess Mary felt that she had no right to reproach her even in her heart. Natasha gave herself up so fully and frankly to this new feeling that she did not try to hide the fact that she was no longer sad, but bright and cheerful. When Princess Mary returned to her room after her nocturnal talk with Pierre, Natasha met her on the threshold. "'He has spoken? Yes, he has spoken?' she repeated. And a joyful, yet pathetic expression which seemed to beg forgiveness for her joy settled on Natasha's face. "'I wanted to listen at the door, but I knew you would tell me.' Understandable and touching as the look with which Natasha gazed at her seemed to Princess Mary, and sorry as she was to see her agitation, these words pained her for a moment. She remembered her brother and his love. "'But what's to be done? She can't help it,' thought the Princess. And with a sad and rather stern look she told Natasha all that Pierre had said. 
on hearing that he was going to Petersburg, Natasha was astounded. "'To Petersburg?' she repeated as if unable to understand. But noticing the grieved expression on Princess Mary's face, she guessed the reason of that sadness and suddenly began to cry. "'Mary,' said she, "'tell me what I should do. I am afraid of being bad. Whatever you tell me, I will do. Tell me.' You love him? Yes, whispered Natasha. Then why are you crying? I am happy for your sake, said Princess Mary, who, because of those tears, quite forgave Natasha's joy. It won't be just yet, some day. Think what fun it will be when I am his wife and you marry Nicholas. Natasha, I have asked you not to speak of that. Let us talk about you. They were silent a while. "'But why go to Petersburg?' Natasha suddenly asked, and hastily replied to her own question. "'But no, no, he must. Yes, Mary, he must.'" End of Book Fifteen, Chapter Twenty First Epilogue, Chapter One of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, 1813-1820 Chapter 1 Seven years have passed. The storm-tossed sea of European history had subsided within its shores and seemed to have become calm, but the mysterious forces that move humanity, mysterious because the laws of their motion are unknown to us, continue to operate. Though the surface of the sea of history seemed motionless, the movement of humanity went on as unceasingly as the flow of time. Various groups of people formed and dissolved, the coming formation and dissolution of kingdoms and displacement of peoples was in course of preparation. The sea of history was not driven spasmodically from shore to shore as previously. It was seething in its depths. Historic figures were not borne by the waves from one shore to another as before, they now seemed to rotate on one spot. The historical figures at the head of armies, who formerly reflected the movement of the masses by ordering wars, campaigns, and battles, now reflected the restless movement by political and diplomatic combinations, laws and treaties. The historians call this activity of the historical figures the reaction. In dealing with this period, they sternly condemn the historical personages, who, in their opinion, caused what they describe as the reaction. All the well-known people of that period, from Alexander and Napoleon to Madame de Stael, Photius, Schelling, Fichte, Chateaubriand, and the rest, pass before their stern judgment seat and are acquitted or condemned, according to whether they conduce to progress or to reaction. According to their accounts, a reaction took place at that time in Russia also, and the chief culprit was Alexander I, the same man who, according to them, was the chief cause of the liberal movement at the commencement of his reign, being the savior of Russia. There is no one in Russian literature now, from schoolboy essayist to learned historian, who does not throw his little stone at Alexander for things he did wrong at this period of his reign. 
He ought to have acted in this way and in that way. In this case he did well, and in that case badly. He behaved admirably at the beginning of his reign and during 1812, but acted badly by giving a constitution to Poland, forming the Holy Alliance, entrusting power to Erechtheev, favoring Golitsyn and his mysticism, and afterwards Shishkov and Photius. He also acted badly by concerning himself with the active army and disbanding the Semenov regiment. It would have taken a dozen pages to enumerate all the reproaches the historians address to him, based on their knowledge of what is good for humanity. What do these reproaches mean? Do not the very actions for which the historians praise Alexander I, the liberal attempts at the beginning of his reign, his struggle with Napoleon, the firmness he displayed in 1812 and the campaign of 1813, flow from the same sources, the circumstances of his birth, education and life, that made his personality what it was and from which the actions for which they blame him, the Holy Alliance, the restoration of Poland, and the reaction of 1820 and later, also flowed? In what does the substance of those reproaches lie? It lies in the fact that an historical character like Alexander I, standing on the highest possible pinnacle of human power with the blinding light of history focused upon him, a character exposed to those strongest of all influences, the intrigues, flattery, and self-deception inseparable from power, a character who at every moment of his life felt a responsibility for all that was happening in Europe, and not a fictitious but a live character, who like every man had his personal habits, passions, and impulses toward goodness, beauty, and truth. That this character, though not lacking in virtue, the historians do not accuse him of that, had not the same conception of the welfare of humanity fifty years ago as a present-day professor who, from his youth upwards, has been occupied with learning, that is, with books and lectures, and with taking notes from them. But even if we assume that fifty years ago Alexander I was mistaken in his view of what was good for the people, we must inevitably assume that the historian who judges Alexander will also, after the lapse of some time, turn out to be mistaken in his view of what is good for humanity. This assumption is all the more natural and inevitable, because, watching the movement of history, we see that every year, and with each new writer, opinion as to what is good for mankind changes. So that what once seemed good, ten years later seems bad, and vice versa. And what is more, we find at one and the same time quite contradictory views as to what is bad and what is good in history. Some people regard giving a constitution to Poland and forming the Holy Alliance as praiseworthy in Alexander, while others regard it as blameworthy. The activity of Alexander or of Napoleon cannot be called useful or harmful, for it is impossible to say for what it was useful or harmful. If that activity displeases somebody, this is only because it does not agree with his limited understanding of what is good. Whether the preservation of my father's house in Moscow, or the glory of the Russian arms, or the prosperity of the Petersburg and other universities, or the freedom of Poland, or the greatness of Russia, or the balance of power in Europe, or a certain kind of European culture called progress appear to me to be good or bad, I must admit that, besides these things, the action of every historic character has other more general purposes inaccessible to me. 
But let us assume that what is called science can harmonize all contradictions, and possesses an unchanging standard of good and bad by which to try historic characters and events. Let us say that Alexander could have done everything differently. Let us say that with guidance from those who blame him, and who profess to know the ultimate aim of the movement of humanity, he might have arranged matters according to the program his present accusers would have given him, of nationality, freedom, equality, and progress. These, I think, cover the ground. Let us assume that this program was possible, and had then been formulated, and that Alexander had acted on it. What would then have become of the activity of all those who opposed the tendency that then prevailed in the government? An activity that in the opinion of the historians was good and beneficent. Their activity would not have existed. There would have been no life. There would have been nothing. If we admit that human life can be ruled by reason, the possibility of life is destroyed. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 1《First Epilogue, Chapter 2, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. — First Epilogue, Chapter 2 If we assume, as the historians do, that great men lead humanity to the attainment of certain ends, the greatness of Russia or of France, the balance of power in Europe, the diffusion of the ideas of the revolution, general progress, or anything else, then it is impossible to explain the facts of history without introducing the conceptions of chance and genius. If the aim of the European wars at the beginning of the nineteenth century had been the aggrandizement of Russia, that aim might have been accomplished without all the preceding wars and without the invasion. If the aim was the aggrandizement of France, that might have been attained without the revolution and without the empire. If the aim was the dissemination of ideas, the printing press could have accomplished that much better than warfare. If the aim was the progress of civilization, it is easy to see that there are other ways of diffusing civilization more expedient than by the destruction of wealth and of human lives. Why did it happen in this and not some other way? Because it happened so. Chance created the situation, genius utilized it, says history. But what is chance? What is genius? The words chance and genius do not denote any really existing thing, and therefore cannot be defined. These words only denote a certain stage of understanding of phenomena. I do not know why a certain event occurs, I think that I cannot know it so I do not try to know it, and I talk about chance. I see a force producing effects beyond the scope of ordinary human agencies. I do not understand why this occurs, and I talk of genius. To a herd of rams, the ram the herdsman drives each evening into a special enclosure to feed, and that becomes twice as fat as the others, must seem to be a genius and it must appear an astonishing conjunction of genius with a whole series of extraordinary chances, that this ram, who instead of getting into the general fold every evening, goes into a special enclosure where there are oats, this very ram, swelling with fat, is killed for meat. 
But the rams need only cease to suppose that all that happens to them happens solely for the attainment of their sheepish aims. They need only admit that what happens to them may also have purposes beyond their ken, and they will at once perceive a unity and coherence in what happened to the ram that was fattened. Even if they do not know for what purpose they are fattened, they will at least know that all that happened to the ram did not happen accidentally, and will no longer need the conceptions of chance or genius. Only by renouncing our claim to discern a purpose immediately intelligible to us, and admitting the ultimate purpose to be beyond our ken, may we discern the sequence of experiences in the lives of historic characters, and perceive the cause of the effect they produce, incommensurable with ordinary human capabilities, and then the words chance and genius become superfluous. We need only confess that we do not know the purpose of the European convulsions, and that we know only the facts, that is, the murders, first in France, then in Italy, in Africa, in Prussia, in Austria, in Spain, and in Russia, and that the movements from the west to the east and from the east to the west form the essence and purpose of these events, and not only shall we have no need to see exceptional ability and genius in Napoleon and Alexander, but we shall be unable to consider them to be anything but like other men, and we shall not be obliged to have recourse to chance for an explanation of those small events which made these people what they were, but it will be clear that all those small events were inevitable. By discarding a claim to knowledge of the ultimate purpose, we shall clearly perceive that, just as one cannot imagine a blossom or seed for any single plant better suited to it than those it produces, so it is impossible to imagine any two people more completely adapted down to the smallest detail for the purpose they had to fulfill than Napoleon and Alexander with all their antecedents. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 2《First Epilogue Chapter 3 of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. — First Epilogue Chapter 3 The fundamental and essential significance of the European events of the beginning of the nineteenth century lies in the movement of the mass of the European peoples from west to east, and afterwards from east to west. The commencement of that movement was the movement from west to east. For the peoples of the west to be able to make their warlike movement to Moscow, it was necessary, one, that they should form themselves into a military group of a size able to endure a collision with the warlike military group of the east, two, that they should abandon all established traditions and customs, and three, that during their military movement they should have at their head a man who could justify to himself and to them the deceptions, robberies, and murders which would have to be committed during that movement. And beginning with the French Revolution, the old inadequately large group was destroyed, as well as the old habits and traditions, and step by step a group was formed of larger dimensions with new customs and traditions and a man was produced who would stand at the head of the coming movement and bear the responsibility for all that had to be done. A man without convictions, without habits, without traditions, without a name, and not even a Frenchman, emerges by what seemed the strangest chances from among all the seething French parties, 
and without joining any one of them is borne forward to a prominent position. The ignorance of his colleagues, the weakness and insignificance of his opponents, the frankness of his falsehoods, and the dazzling and self-confident limitations of this man raise him to the head of the army. The brilliant qualities of the soldiers of the army sent to Italy, his opponent's reluctance to fight, and his own childish audacity and self-confidence secure him military fame. Innumerable so-called chances accompany him everywhere. The disfavor into which he falls with the rulers of France turns to his advantage. His attempts to avoid his predestined path are unsuccessful. He is not received into the Russian service, and the appointment he seeks in Turkey comes to nothing. During the war in Italy he is several times on the verge of destruction, and each time is saved in an unexpected manner. Owing to various diplomatic considerations the Russian armies, just those which might have destroyed his prestige, do not appear upon the scene till he is no longer there. On his return from Italy he finds the government in Paris in a process of dissolution, in which all those who are in it are inevitably wiped out and destroyed. And by chance an escape from this dangerous position presents itself in the form of an aimless and senseless expedition to Africa. Again so-called chance accompanies him. Impregnable Malta surrenders without a shot. His most reckless schemes are crowned with success. The enemy's fleet, which subsequently did not let a single boat pass, allows his entire army to elude it. In Africa a whole series of outrages are committed against the almost unarmed inhabitants. And the men who commit these crimes, especially their leader, assure themselves that this is admirable, this is glory. It resembles Caesar and Alexander the Great and is therefore good. This ideal of glory and grandeur, which consists not merely in considering nothing wrong that one does, but in priding oneself on every crime one commits, ascribing to it an incomprehensible supernatural significance, that ideal, destined to guide this man and his associates, has scope for its development in Africa. Whatever he does succeeds. The plague does not touch him. The cruelty of murdering prisoners is not imputed to him as a fault. His childishly rash, uncalled-for, and ignoble departure from Africa, leaving his comrades in distress, is set down to his credit, and again the enemy's fleet twice lets him slip past. When, intoxicated by the crimes he has committed so successfully, he reaches Paris, the dissolution of the Republican government, which a year earlier might have ruined him, has reached its extreme limit, and his presence there now as a newcomer free from party entanglements can only serve to exalt him, and though he himself has no plan, he is quite ready for his new role. He had no plan, he was afraid of everything, but the party snatched at him and demanded his participation. He alone, with his ideal of glory and grandeur developed in Italy and Egypt, his insane self-adulation, his boldness in crime and frankness in lying, he alone could justify what had to be done. He is needed for the place that awaits him, and so almost apart from his will and despite his indecision, his lack of a plan and all his mistakes, 
he is drawn into a conspiracy that aims at seizing power and the conspiracy is crowned with success. He is pushed into a meeting of the legislature. In alarm he wishes to flee, considering himself lost. He pretends to fall into a swoon and says senseless things that should have ruined him. But the once proud and shrewd rulers of France, feeling that their part is played out, are even more bewildered than he, and do not say the words they should have said to destroy him and retain their power. Chance, millions of chances give him power, and all the men, as if by agreement, cooperate to confirm that power. Chance forms the characters of the rulers of France, who submit to him. Chance forms the character of Paul I of Russia, who recognizes his government. Chance contrives a plot against him, which not only fails to harm him, but confirms his power. Chance puts the Duke d'Anguien in his hands and unexpectedly causes him to kill him, thereby convincing the mob more forcibly than in any other way that he had the right since he had the might. Chance contrives that, though he directs all his efforts to prepare an expedition against England, which would inevitably have ruined him, he never carries out that intention, but unexpectedly falls upon Mack and the Austrians, who surrender without a battle. Chance and genius give him the victory at Austerlitz. And by chance all men, not only the French but all Europe, except England which does not take part in the events about to happen, despite their former horror and detestation of his crimes, now recognize his authority, the title he has given himself, and his ideal of grandeur and glory, which seems excellent and reasonable to them all. As if measuring themselves and preparing for the coming movement, the Western forces pushed toward the East several times in 1805, 1806, 1807, and 1809, gaining strength and growing. In 1811 the group of people that had formed in France unites into one group with the peoples of Central Europe. The strength of the justification of the man who stands at the head of the movement grows with the increased size of the group. During the ten-year preparatory period this man had formed relations with all the crowned heads of Europe. The discredited rulers of the world can oppose no reasonable ideal to the insensate Napoleonic ideal of glory and grandeur. One after another they hasten to display their insignificance before him. The King of Prussia sends his wife to seek the great man's mercy. The Emperor of Austria considers it a favor that this man receives a daughter of the Caesars into his bed. The Pope, the guardian of all that the nations hold sacred, utilizes religion for the aggrandizement of the great man. It is not Napoleon who prepares himself for the accomplishment of his role, so much as all those round him who prepare him to take on himself the whole responsibility for what is happening and has to happen. There is no step, no crime, or petty fraud he commits which in the mouths of those around him is not at once represented as a great deed. The most suitable fete the Germans can devise for him is a celebration of Jena and Auerstadt. Not only is he great, but so are his ancestors, his brothers, his stepsons, and his brothers-in-law. Everything is done to deprive him of the remains of his reason, and to prepare him for his terrible part. And when he is ready, so too are the forces. The invasion pushes eastward and reaches its final goal, Moscow. That city is taken. 
the Russian army suffers heavier losses than the opposing armies had suffered in the former war from Austerlitz to Wagram. But suddenly, instead of those chances and that genius which hitherto had so consistently led him by an uninterrupted series of successes to the predestined goal, an innumerable sequence of inverse chances occur, from the cold in his head at Borodino to the sparks which set Moscow on fire and the frosts, and instead of genius, stupidity and immeasurable baseness become evident. The invaders flee, turn back, flee again, and all the chances are now not for Napoleon, but always against him. A counter-movement is then accomplished from east to west, with a remarkable resemblance to the preceding movement from west to east. Attempted drives from east to west, similar to the contrary movements in 1805, 1807, and 1809, precede the great western movement. There is the same coalescence into a group of enormous dimensions the same adhesion of the people of Central Europe to the movement, the same hesitation midway, and the same increasing rapidity as the goal is approached. Paris, the ultimate goal, is reached. The Napoleonic government and army are destroyed. Napoleon himself is no longer of any account. All his actions are evidently pitiful and mean, but again an inexplicable chance occurs. The Allies detest Napoleon, whom they regard as the cause of their sufferings. Deprived of power and authority, his crimes and his craft exposed, he should have appeared to them what he appeared ten years previously and one year later, an outlawed brigand. But by some strange chance no one perceives this. His part is not yet ended. The man who ten years before and a year later was considered an outlawed brigand is sent to an island two days' sail from France, which for some reason is presented to him as his dominion, and guards are given to him and millions of money are paid him. End of First Epilogue Chapter 3《Of War and Peace》Volume 4 by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue Chapter 4 The flood of nations begins to subside into its normal channels. The waves of the great movement abate, and on the calm surface eddies are formed in which float the diplomatists, who imagine that they have caused the floods to abate but the smooth sea again suddenly becomes disturbed. The diplomatists think that their disagreements are the cause of this fresh pressure of natural forces. They anticipate war between their sovereigns. The position seems to them insoluble. But the wave they feel to be rising does not come from the quarter they expect. It rises again from the same point as before, Paris. The last backwash of the movement from the west occurs a backwash which serves to solve the apparently insuperable diplomatic difficulties and ends the military movement of that period of history. The man who had devastated France returns to France alone, without any conspiracy and without soldiers. Any guard might arrest him, but by strange chance no one does so, and all rapturously greet the man they cursed the day before and will curse again a month later. This man is still needed to justify the final collective act. 
that act is performed. The last role is played. The actor is bidden to disrobe and wash off his powder and paint. He will not be wanted any more. And some years pass during which he plays a pitiful comedy to himself in solitude on his island, justifying his actions by intrigues and lies when the justification is no longer needed, and displaying to the whole world what it was that people had mistaken for strength as long as an unseen hand directed his actions. The manager, having brought the drama to a close and stripped the actor, shows him to us. See what you believed in. This is he. Do you now see that it was not he but I who moved you? But dazed by the force of the movement, it was long before people understood this. Still greater coherence and inevitability is seen in the life of Alexander I, the man who stood at the head of the counter-movement from east to west. What was needed for him, who, overshadowing others, stood at the head of that movement from east to west? What was needed was a sense of justice and a sympathy with European affairs, but a remote sympathy not dulled by petty interests a moral superiority over those sovereigns of the day who cooperated with him, a mild and attractive personality, and a personal grievance against Napoleon. And all this was found in Alexander I. All this had been prepared by innumerable so-called chances in his life, his education, his early liberalism, the advisers who surrounded him, and by Austerlitz and Tilsit and Erfurt. During the National War he was inactive because he was not needed. But as soon as the necessity for a general European war presented itself he appeared in his place at the given moment, and uniting the nations of Europe led them to the goal. The goal was reached. After the final war of 1815 Alexander possesses all possible power. How does he use it? Alexander I, the pacifier of Europe, the man who from his early years had striven only for his people's welfare, the originator of the liberal innovations in his fatherland. Now that he seemed to possess the utmost power and therefore to have the possibility of bringing about the welfare of his peoples, at the time when Napoleon in exile was drawing up childish and mendacious plans of how he would have made mankind happy had he retained power, Alexander I, having fulfilled his mission and feeling the hand of God upon him, suddenly recognizes the insignificance of that supposed power, turns away from it, and gives it into the hands of contemptible men whom he despises, saying only, Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name. I too am a man like the rest of you. Let me live like a man, and think of my soul and of God." As the sun and each atom of ether is a sphere complete in itself, and yet at the same time only a part of a whole too immense for man to comprehend, so each individual has within himself his own aims, and yet has them to serve a general purpose incomprehensible to man. A bee settling on a flower has stung a child, and the child is afraid of bees and declares that bees exist to sting people. A poet admires the bee sucking from the chalice of a flower and says it exists to suck the fragrance of flowers. A beekeeper, seeing the bee collect pollen from flowers and carry it to the hive, says that it exists to gather honey. 
Another beekeeper, who has studied the life of the hive more closely, says that the bee gathers pollen dust to feed the young bees and rear a queen, and that it exists to perpetuate its race. A botanist notices that the bee flying with the pollen of a male flower to a pistol fertilizes the latter, and sees in this the purpose of the bee's existence. Another, observing the migration of plants, notices that the bee helps in this work, and may say that in this lies the purpose of the bee. But the ultimate purpose of the bee is not exhausted by the first, the second, or any of the processes the human mind can discern. The higher the human intellect rises in the discovery of these purposes, the more obvious it becomes that the ultimate purpose is beyond our comprehension. All that is accessible to man is the relation of the life of the bee to other manifestations of life. And so it is with the purpose of historic characters and nations. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 4《First Epilogue, Chapter 5, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. — First Epilogue, Chapter 5 Natasha's wedding to Bezukhov, which took place in 1813, was the last happy event in the family of the old Rostovs. Count Ilya Rostov died that same year, and, as always happens, after the father's death the family group broke up. The events of the previous year, the burning of Moscow and the flight from it, the death of Prince Andrew, Natasha's despair, Petya's death and the old countess's grief fell blow after blow on the old count's head. He seemed to be unable to understand the meaning of all these events, and bowed his old head in a spiritual sense as if expecting and inviting further blows which would finish him. He seemed now frightened and distraught, and now unnaturally animated and enterprising. The arrangements for Natasha's marriage occupied him for a while. He ordered dinners and suppers, and obviously tried to appear cheerful, but his cheerfulness was not infectious as it used to be. On the contrary, it evoked the compassion of those who knew and liked him. When Pierre and his wife had left, he grew very quiet and began to complain of depression. A few days later he fell ill and took to his bed. He realized from the first that he would not get up again, despite the doctor's encouragement. The countess passed a fortnight in an armchair by his pillow without undressing. Every time she gave him his medicine he sobbed and silently kissed her hand. On his last day, sobbing, he asked her and his absent son to forgive him for having dissipated their property, that being the chief fault of which he was conscious. After receiving communion and unction he quietly died, and next day a throng of acquaintances who came to pay their last respects to the deceased filled the house rented by the Rostovs. All these acquaintances, who had so often dined and danced at his house and had so often laughed at him, now said, with a common feeling of self-reproach and emotion, as if justifying themselves, "'Well, whatever he may have been, he was a most worthy man. You don't meet such men nowadays.' and which of us has not weaknesses of his own?" It was just when the Count's affairs had become so involved that it was impossible to say what would happen if he lived another year that he unexpectedly died. 
Nicholas was with the Russian army in Paris when the news of his father's death reached him. He at once resigned his commission, and without waiting for it to be accepted took leave of absence and went to Moscow. The state of the Count's affairs became quite obvious a month after his death, surprising everyone by the immense total of small debts the existence of which no one had suspected. The debts amounted to double the value of the property. Friends and relations advised Nicholas to decline the inheritance. But he regarded such a refusal as a slur on his father's memory, which he held sacred, and therefore would not hear of refusing and accepted the inheritance together with the obligation to pay the debts. The creditors who had so long been silent, restrained by a vague but powerful influence exerted on them while he lived by the Count's careless good nature, all proceeded to enforce their claims at once. As always happens in such cases, rivalry sprang up as to which should get paid first, and those who, like Matenka, held promissory notes given them as presents, now became the most exacting of the creditors. Nicholas was allowed no respite and no peace, and those who had seemed to pity the old man, the cause of their losses, if they were losses, now remorselessly pursued the young heir who had voluntarily undertaken the debts and was obviously not guilty of contracting them. Not one of the plans Nicholas tried succeeded. The estate was sold by auction for half its value, and half the debts still remained unpaid. Nicholas accepted thirty thousand roubles offered him by his brother-in-law Bazukov, to pay off debts he regarded as genuinely due for value received. And to avoid being in prison for the remainder, as the creditors threatened, he re-entered the government service. He could not rejoin the army, where he would have been made a colonel at the next vacancy, for his mother now clung to him as her one hold on life, and so, despite his reluctance to remain in Moscow, among people who had known him before, and despite his abhorrence of the civil service, he accepted a post in Moscow in that service, doffed the uniform of which he was so fond, and moved with his mother and Sonya to a small house on the Siftsev Rajok. Natasha and Pierre were living in Petersburg at the time and had no clear idea of Nicholas' circumstances. Having borrowed money from his brother-in-law, Nicholas tried to hide his wretched condition from him. His position was the more difficult, because with his salary of twelve hundred roubles he had not only to keep himself, his mother and Sonya, but had to shield his mother from the knowledge of their poverty. The Countess could not conceive of life without the luxurious conditions she had been used to from childhood, and, unable to realize how hard it was for her son, kept demanding now a carriage, which they did not keep, to send for a friend, now some expensive article of food for herself, or wine for her son, or money to buy a present as a surprise for Natasha or Sonia, or for Nicholas himself. Sonia kept house, attended on her aunt, read to her, put up with her whims and secret ill-will, and helped Nicholas to conceal their poverty from the old countess. Nicholas felt himself irredeemably indebted to Sonia for all she was doing for his mother, and greatly admired her patience and devotion, but tried to keep aloof from her. He seemed in his heart to reproach her for being too perfect, and because there was nothing to reproach her with. She had all that people are valued for, but little that could have made him love her. He felt that the more he valued her, the less he loved her. He had taken her at her word when she wrote giving him his freedom, 
and now behaved as if all that had passed between them had been long forgotten and could never in any case be renewed. Nicholas's position became worse and worse. The idea of putting something aside out of his salary proved a dream. Not only did he not save anything, but to comply with his mother's demands he even incurred some small debts. He could see no way out of this situation. The idea of marrying some rich woman, which was suggested to him by his female relations, was repugnant to him. The other way out, his mother's death, never entered his head. He wished for nothing and hoped for nothing, and deep in his heart experienced a gloomy and stern satisfaction in an uncomplaining endurance of his position. He tried to avoid his old acquaintances with their commiseration and offensive offers of assistance. He avoided all distraction and recreation, and even at home did nothing but play cards with his mother, pace silently up and down the room, and smoke one pipe after another. He seemed carefully to cherish within himself the gloomy mood which alone enabled him to endure his position. End of First Epilogue Chapter 5First Epilogue, Chapter 6, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 6 At the beginning of winter Princess Mary came to Moscow. From reports current in town she learned how the Rostovs were situated, and how the son has sacrificed himself for his mother, as people were saying. I never expected anything else of him," said Princess Mary to herself, feeling a joyous sense of her love for him. Remembering her friendly relations with all the Rostovs which had made her almost a member of the family, she thought it her duty to go to see them. But remembering her relations with Nicholas and Voronezh, she was shy about doing so. Making a great effort, she did, however, go to call on them a few weeks after her arrival in Moscow. Nicholas was the first to meet her, as the Countess' room could only be reached through his. But instead of being greeted with pleasure as she had expected, at his first glance at her his face assumed a cold, stiff, proud expression she had not seen on it before. He inquired about her health, led the way to his mother, and having sat there for five minutes left the room. When the Princess came out of the Countess' room Nicholas met her again and with marked solemnity and stiffness accompanied her to the anteroom. To her remarks about his mother's health he made no reply. "'What's that to you? Leave me in peace,' his look seemed to say. "'Why does she come prowling here? What does she want? I can't bear these ladies and all these civilities,' said he aloud in Sonia's presence, evidently unable to repress his vexation after the princess's carriage had disappeared. "'Oh, Nicholas, how can you talk like that?' cried Sonia, hardly able to conceal her delight. "'She is so kind, and Mama is so fond of her.' Nicholas did not reply, and tried to avoid speaking of the Princess any more. But after her visit the old Countess spoke of her several times a day. She sang her praises, insisted that her son must call on her, expressed a wish to see her often, but yet always became ill-humoured when she began to talk about her. Nicholas tried to keep silence when his mother spoke of the princess, but his silence irritated her. 
"'She is a very admirable and excellent young woman,' said she, "'and you must go and call on her. You would at least be seeing somebody, and I think it must be dull for you only seeing us.' "'But I don't in the least want to, Mama. "'You used to want to, and now you don't. Really, I don't understand you, my dear. One day you are dull, and the next you refuse to see anyone.' but I never said I was dull. Why, you said yourself you don't want even to see her. She is a very admirable young woman, and you always liked her, but now, suddenly, you have got some notion or other in your head. You hide everything from me." Not at all, Mama. If I were asking you to do something disagreeable now, but I only ask you to return a call. One would think mere politeness required it. Well, I have asked you, and now I won't interfere any more since you have secrets from your mother. Well, then, I'll go if you wish it. It doesn't matter to me. I only wish it for your sake. Nicholas sighed, bit his mustache, and laid out the cards for a patience, trying to divert his mother's attention to another topic. The same conversation was repeated next day, and the day after, and the day after that. After her visit to the Rostovs and her unexpectedly chilly reception by Nicholas, Princess Mary confessed to herself that she had been right in not wishing to be the first to call. "'I expected nothing else,' she told herself, calling her pride to her aid. "'I have nothing to do with him, and I only wanted to see the old lady, who is always kind to me and to whom I am under many obligations.' but she could not pacify herself with these reflections. A feeling akin to remorse troubled her when she thought of her visit. Though she had firmly resolved not to call on the Rostovs again and to forget the whole matter, she felt herself all the time in an awkward position. And when she asked herself what distressed her, she had to admit that it was her relation to Rostov. His cold, polite manner did not express his feeling for her, she knew that, but it concealed something and until she could discover what that something was, she felt that she could not be at ease. One day in midwinter, when sitting in the schoolroom attending to her nephew's lessons, she was informed that Rostov had called. With a firm resolution not to betray herself and not show her agitation, she sent for Mademoiselle Bourienne and went with her to the drawing-room. Her first glance at Nicholas' face told her that he had only come to fulfill the demands of politeness, and she firmly resolved to maintain the tone in which he addressed her. They spoke of the Countess' health, of their mutual friends, of the latest war news, and when the ten minutes required by propriety had elapsed after which a visitor may rise, Nicholas got up to say good-bye. With Mademoiselle Brienne's help, the Princess had maintained the conversation very well but at the very last moment, just when he rose, she was so tired of talking of what did not interest her, and her mind was so full of the question why she alone was granted so little happiness in life, that in a fit of absent-mindedness she sat still, her luminous eyes gazing fixedly before her, not noticing that he had risen. Nicholas glanced at her, and wishing to appear not to notice her abstraction, made some remark to Mademoiselle Bourienne and then again looked at the princess. She still sat motionless, with a look of suffering on her gentle face. He suddenly felt sorry for her, and was vaguely conscious that he might be the cause of the sadness her face expressed. 
He wished to help her and say something pleasant, but could think of nothing to say. "'Good-bye, Princess,' said he. She started, flushed, and sighed deeply. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' she said, as if waking up. "'Are you going already, Count? Well, then, good-bye. Oh, but the cushion for the Countess!' "'Wait a moment, I'll fetch it,' said Mademoiselle Bourienne, and she left the room. They both sat silent, with an occasional glance at one another. "'Yes, Princess,' said Nicholas at last, with a sad smile. "'It doesn't seem long ago since we first met at Bogacharovo, but how much water has flowed since then! In what distress we all seem to be then! Yet I would give much to bring back that time. But there's no bringing it back.' Princess Mary gazed intently into his eyes, with her own luminous ones, as he said this. She seemed to be trying to fathom the hidden meaning of his words which would explain his feeling for her. "'Yes, yes,' said she. "'But you have no reason to regret the past, Count. As I understand your present life, I think you will always recall it with satisfaction, because the self-sacrifice that fills it now—' "'I cannot accept your praise,' he interrupted her hurriedly. "'On the contrary, I continually reproach myself. But this is not at all an interesting or cheerful subject.' His face again resumed its former stiff and cold expression. But the princess had caught a glimpse of the man she had known and loved, and it was to him that she now spoke. "'I thought you would allow me to tell you this,' she said. "'I had come so near to you, and to all your family, that I thought you would not consider my sympathy misplaced. But I was mistaken.' And suddenly her voice trembled. "'I don't know why,' she continued, recovering herself. "'But you used to be different. And—' "'There are a thousand reasons why,' laying special emphasis on the why. Thank you, Princess," he said softly. Sometimes it is hard. So that's why, that's why, a voice whispered in Princess Mary's soul. No, it was not only that gay, kind and frank look, not only that handsome exterior that I loved in him. I divined his noble, resolute, self-sacrificing spirit, too," she said to herself. Yes, he is poor now, and I am rich. Yes, that's the only reason. Yes, were it not for that!" And remembering his former tenderness, and looking now at his kind, sorrowful face, she suddenly understood the cause of his coldness. "'But why, Count, why?' she almost cried, unconsciously moving closer to him. "'Why? Tell me! You must tell me!' He was silent. "'I don't understand your why, Count.' she continued, but it's hard for me, I confess it. For some reason you wish to deprive me of our former friendship, and that hurts me." There were tears in her eyes and in her voice. "'I have had so little happiness in life that every loss is hard for me to bear. Excuse me, good-bye!' And suddenly she began to cry and was hurrying from the room. "'Princess, for God's sake!' he exclaimed, trying to stop her. "'Princess!' She turned round. For a few seconds they gazed silently into one another's eyes, and what had seemed impossible and remote 
suddenly became possible, inevitable, and very near. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 6《First Epilogue, Chapter 7 of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 7 In the winter of 1813, Nicholas married Princess Mary and moved to Bald Hills with his wife, his mother, and Sonia. Within four years he had paid off all his remaining debts without selling any of his wife's property, and having received a small inheritance on the death of a cousin, he paid his debt to Pierre as well. In another three years, by 1820, he had so managed his affairs that he was able to buy a small estate adjoining Bald Hills, and was negotiating to buy back Otradno, that being his pet dream. Having started farming from necessity, he soon grew so devoted to it that it became his favorite and almost his sole occupation. Nicholas was a plain farmer. He did not like innovations, especially the English ones then coming into vogue. He laughed at theoretical treatises on estate management, disliked factories, the raising of expensive products, and the buying of expensive seed-corn, and did not make a hobby of any particular part of the work on his estate. He always had before his mind's eye the estate as a whole, and not any particular part of it. The chief thing in his eyes was not the nitrogen in the soil, nor the oxygen in the air, nor manures, nor special ploughs, but that most important agent by which nitrogen, oxygen, manure, and plough were made effective—the peasant laborer. When Nicholas first began farming and began to understand its different branches, it was the serf who especially attracted his attention. The peasant seemed to him not merely a tool, but also a judge of farming and an end in himself. At first he watched the serfs, trying to understand their aims and what they considered good and bad, and only pretended to direct them and give orders while in reality learning from them their methods, their manner of speech, and their judgment of what was good and bad. Only when he had understood the peasants' tastes and aspirations, had learned to talk their language, to grasp the hidden meaning of their words, and felt akin to them did he begin boldly to manage his serfs, that is, to perform toward them the duties demanded of him. And Nicholas' management produced very brilliant results. Guided by some gift of insight, on taking up the management of the estates, he at once unerringly appointed as bailiff, village elder, and delegate, the very men the serfs would themselves have chosen had they had the right to choose, and these posts never changed hands. Before analyzing the properties of manure, before entering into the debit and credit, as he ironically called it, he found out how many cattle the peasants had and increased the number by all possible means. He kept the peasant families together in the largest groups possible, not allowing the family groups to divide into separate households. He was hard alike on the lazy, the depraved, and the weak, and tried to get them expelled from the commune. He was very careful of the sowing and reaping of the peasants' hay and corn as of his own, and few landowners had their crops sown and harvested so early and so well, or got so good a return as did Nicholas. He disliked having anything to do with the domestic serfs, 
the drones as he called them, and everyone said he spoiled them by his laxity. When a decision had to be taken regarding a domestic serf, especially if one had to be punished, he always felt undecided and consulted everybody in the house. But when it was possible to have a domestic serf conscripted instead of a landworker, he did so without the least hesitation. He never felt any hesitation in dealing with the peasants. He knew that his every decision would be approved by them all with very few exceptions. He did not allow himself either to be hard on or punish a man, or to make things easy for or reward anyone, merely because he felt inclined to do so. He could not have said by what standard he judged what he should or should not do, but the standard was quite firm and definite in his own mind. Often, speaking with vexation of some failure or irregularity, he would say, "'What can one do with our Russian peasants?' and imagined that he could not bear them. Yet he loved our Russian peasants and their way of life with his whole soul, and for that very reason had understood and assimilated the one way and manner of farming which produced good results. Countess Mary was jealous of this passion of her husband's, and regretted that she could not share it. But she could not understand the joys and vexations he derived from that world, to her so remote and alien. She could not understand why he was so particularly animated and happy when, after getting up at daybreak and spending the whole morning in the fields or on the threshing-floor, he returned from the sowing or mowing or reaping to have tea with her. She did not understand why he spoke with such admiration and delight of the farming of the thrifty and well-to-do peasant Matthew Ermitian, who with his family had carded corn all night, or of the fact that his, Nicholas Sheaves, were already stacked before anyone else had his harvest in. She did not understand why he stepped out from the window to the veranda and smiled under his moustache and winked so joyfully when warm steady rain began to fall on the dry and thirsty shoots of the young oats. Or why, when the wind carried away a threatening cloud during the hay harvest, he would return from the barn, flushed, sunburned, and perspiring, with a smell of wormwood and gentian in his hair, and gleefully rubbing his hands, would say, "'Well, one more day, and my grain and the peasants will all be under cover.' Still less did she understand why he, kind-hearted and always ready to anticipate her wishes, should become almost desperate when she brought him a petition from some peasant man or women who had appealed to her to be excused some work. Why he, that kind Nicholas, should obstinately refuse her, angrily asking her not to interfere in what was not her business. She felt he had a world apart, which he loved passionately and which had laws she had not fathomed. Sometimes, when trying to understand him, she spoke of the good work he was doing for his serfs, he would be vexed and reply, "'Not in the least. It never entered my head, and I wouldn't do that for their good. That's all poetry and old wives' talk, all that doing good to one's neighbor. What I want is that our children should not have to go begging.' I must put our affairs in order while I am alive, that's all. And to do that, order and strictness are essential. That's all about it," said he, clenching his vigorous fist. "'And fairness, of course,' he added. 
for if the peasant is naked and hungry and has only one miserable horse, he can do no good either for himself or for me." And all Nicholas did was fruitful, probably just because he refused to allow himself to think that he was doing good to others for virtue's sake. His means increased rapidly. Serfs from neighboring estates came to beg him to buy them, and long after his death the memory of his administration was devoutly preserved among the serfs. He was a master! The peasant's affairs first, and then his own. Of course he was not to be trifled with either. In a word, he was a real master. End of First Epilogue Chapter 7「BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.